The How Is This Movie podcast is supported by listeners like you. Go to www.patreon.com slash howisthismovie. There you can pledge as little as a dollar a month to help us maintain our goal of keeping this show independent and free of advertising. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this very special episode of How Is This Movie? My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you for taking just a little time out of your day to listen. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at How Is This Movie. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash howisthismovie. You can always reach out to me with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment and leave a review on whatever platform you use to listen. This is part two of my conversation with director Phil Giovanno. In this episode, we discuss Phil's journey from film school to his first feature film, Three O'Clock High. We then talk about his film, Entropy, which continues to be one of my favorite movies, and round out the chat with a discussion about Phil's concert film, U2 Rattle and Hum. Phil also offers his advice to those who are just getting started in filmmaking. So enjoy part two of my conversation with Phil Giovanno. Can you sort of take me from, I'm out of high school, I'm going to film school, to Three O'Clock High? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I had in high school, I had made, I was obsessed with film since I was 13 or 14. So I made a bunch of Super 8 movies, starting with little silent Super 8s, like, you know, in this classic Spielbergian sense of it and told little stories and they got bigger and longer and more complex. And by the time I was out of high school, I was telling 35, 45 minute stories on Super 8. I uh, had my, you know, I, I, I had a paper out and saved up for a little sound camera and all of that. And it was just very <clears throat> embarrassingly Spielbergian, the whole story. But I loved it. And all my friends would act in it and the stories. In fact, one of them was a horror film called Albino Hill. And and uh, uh, that was my first horror film, Albino Hill. Uh, very politically incorrect when it comes to the albinos of the world. I apologize. But uh, anyway, so um, and then I, I, I wanted to get in film school and uh, applied to both UCLA and USC's film school and uh, got rejected by both. And uh, they wouldn't, back then, I don't know what the deal is now, but back then they wouldn't look at any films you'd made. It was just like an essay and letters of recommendation. And I didn't have any letters of recommendation. I didn't, my family's not involved in entertainment at all. So I wrote an essay and I guess it must not have been very good and, and didn't get in and couldn't apply again at UCLA, but you could apply again at USC. So I went over to USC and as a general major and I, I took a bunch of film classes and found out who was on the committee and um, took their classes, ended up showing some of my films and making some films in those film classes. So that was my end around the rule. They saw them in the context of a class. And then I got those teachers to write letters of recommendation to themselves, uh, like, you know, since they were on the committee for me, and they did. And, and that's how I got in USC eventually. So it, it, I ended up going to college for five years. So it took me a year to get into USC. And I finally did. And then I left USC with what they called back then a 480, which was a 30-minute um, student film. And that was called Last Chance Dance, which actually you can see uh, on my website, philjuanodirector.com. Uh, Last Chance Dance is uh, posted there under student films. So if anyone ever wanted to watch the student film that 
about four days after we screened Last Chance Dance, my phone rang or at my parents' house and it was Steven Spielberg calling me. And I, uh, my mom said, uh, Philip, it's Steven Spielberg. And I said, what? And I got on the phone and I thought it was my friend screwing around with me. And I was like, yeah, hello. And it was really Steven Spielberg. What's going through your head? Tell, tell, I mean, take me through that very moment, please. Well, I didn't believe it. You know, I really did think it was my friends just, you know, goofing on me and, and uh, you know, just screwing around with me. But as soon as I heard his voice, you know, I'd seen him enough on TV and and, and various things. And I, I knew his voice kind of, which I was surprised by. And he's like, hello, Philip, it's Steven Spielberg. And I just was like, oh. and literally I was speechless. I mean, I literally just could barely speak. I, I was stunned and numb and my head was spinning. And I was like, hi. And he said, oh, I saw your film, uh, you know, Kathy Kennedy and uh, Frank Marshall and Bob Zemeckis and I uh, were on a plane together and uh, we popped in your film on the plane and watched. I was like, you're watching Last Chance Dance on a private jet flying over America. I was like, I couldn't I didn't even know what to think. And and I still kind of thought it was a bit of a joke, like maybe a, a, an impersonator or something. But anyway, he said, you want to come over to Amblin tomorrow morning? And are you available? <laughs> I said, yes, I am. And 10 a.m. the next morning, I was uh, sitting in Steven Spielberg's office. He offered me, uh, he was then doing the show Amazing Stories. And uh, they had just started producing that. And he offered me their Christmas special, which is called Santa 85, which is also actually on my website. People can see if they want to see the very first thing I ever directed. Very, very different from The Veil, I can promise you that. And I, of course, didn't even need to read it. I said yes, then and there. And um, that's how it all began. You know, I I ended up doing that amazing story for him. And then that went okay. And then he offered me another one, which I did with John Lithgow, which was called The Doll. And John won an Emmy for that, for Best Actor. Then, this is kind of funny. So then Stephen gave me a script that was entitled After School. And I read it and it was, you know, about a bully trying to beat up this kid in high school. And very John Hughes-esque, you know, very much more in a John Hughes tone a pretty in pink tone than then three o'clock high ended up being. And I read it. I took it home and read it. So it was my first directorial offer ever. And I, um, while I liked it, I, I didn't want to do a high school movie. So I, I wrestled with it. I just, I, had, and remember there were a lot of them being made at the time. This is in the, this is in the mid eighties. So you're now talking, Cynthia, you're talking 1986. So I was like, oh, everyone's making high school movies. And uh, I just didn't, you know, I felt like, how am I going to stand out against John Hughes? And I was all worried about my, fr- you know, I, I had put a lot of pressure on what my first film was going to be, which in retrospect was pretty silly. But I, I, you know, you just, you're a kid and you think it matters. So I passed. You passed. I passed. And I went to Steven the next day and to Kathy. Kennedy who was running the show and with him. And I said, you know, I really want to make a movie with you guys. And I'm so thank you, but I'm writing a script that I really want to make that I'll show you. I'm almost done with it. And so I did have something else that I really wanted to do. And they said, okay. And they were really cool about it. They said, okay, okay. And so then, you know, the day went by and I went home that night and I was laying in bed awake. And I thought to myself, did you just say no to Steven Spielberg to make a movie for Universal? And like my, I, 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 my eyes like jumped out of my head. I couldn't sleep all night. I waited like 7 a.m. the next morning. I drove back down to Amblin. I sat there 
outside his office in a little chair, just I'll never forget, waiting for him to come in the door with this mortal fear that he had given it to somebody else. And um, he walked in and I said, Stephen, hi, I'm so sorry. I, I want to say yes. I want to say yes. I'm so sorry. I want to say yes. He's like, great, great. He was like kind of chuckling and like thought it was, he was quite amused by the fear in my eyes. And, uh, and that's how three o'clock I got done. And then he actually let me rewrite it. Um, so then I re I rewrote it and did the, and turned it into three o'clock high and added, you know, all the dark I had seen after hours and I loved after hours and after hours had come out recently. And I said, I want to do after hours in a high school, just like Griffin Dunn being trapped in Soho. I want my guy to be trapped in the high school. And no matter what he tries to do, you know, get kicked out of school, cheat on the test, the switchblade, the brass knuckles, whatever, kiss the girl, kiss the teacher. And I, I added, no, he's trapped. He cannot get kicked. So not only was it about having to fight a bully, but you can't actually get kicked out of high school no matter what you do. And I thought that was kind of the funny, rather than it just being afraid of, of having to fight the bully and scared all day, it was also, wait, if I try to get out of here, I won't have to fight him. And then, of course, in the end, you just can't get kicked out and you have to face the music. So... So um, it ended up being a really fun experience. Okay, so I'm I'm probably going to gush a little bit because it's one of my favorite comedies of all time. Um, oh. But one of the things, and I, truth be known, I rewatched it last night because uh, oh I, I, I knew I was going to be talking to you, I, I, <laughs> I, and I hadn't watched it in about a year and a half or so. So I thought I, I better I better give it a rewatch. And one of the things I really love about Three O'clock High is the pace of the movie. Mm. There's there's it never bogs down for a moment like it's it's constantly going 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 you you talk about all the different things that jerry tries to do to to get out of school each one of those i mean if you you could take six things out of that out of that movie and and include just a few things and that would still be satisfying but you layer so much on top of it and it, it's just brilliant sorry i just had to tell you that i just oh, i no, listen thank you. i, I thank love you. it, it was Oh, it was fun, you know, and I, and I wasn't that far removed from high school at the time, you know, so to me, you know, the student store and, you know, robbing the student store, we had a student store at my high school and robbing, and it looked very similar to the student store in the movie, ultimately, and robbing it and trying to hire the guy and knocking over the bookcases. It was all stuff, you know, that, again, were kind of elements that existed in my old high school. And so I just kind of plugged in, what if I, I plugged myself in and I was like, what if I had to fight this guy and what would I try to do? And, and, you know, all these crazy things. And, um, you know, in fact, Wojtek Delinsky, the Dean of Discipline was the name of my Dean of Discipline was Wojtek Delinsky. And of course, Universal found out about that. Like, I didn't really realize, like, again, I was pretty naive about all this stuff like the legalities and stuff, you know, and, um, and it's pre-internet, you've got to understand. So it wasn't like it was all out there. What was, you could use and not use. And, uh, I used his name in the week before the movie, they found out that I used the real Wojtek Delinsky's name and there's some disparaging things around Wojtek. And uh, they were like, Oh my God, they were freaking out, but it was too late. And of course I found out later that he couldn't have been prouder to be in the movie. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. And he gave me nothing but trouble throughout high school, but it was, it was, uh, yeah, the Duker and, uh, John Ryan as the principal and, um, you know, Buddy Ravel and, and, uh, it was just, it was, um, you know, we added in or, you know, I added in that whole thing about being touched. That wasn't in the original, you know, he didn't like to be touched. I figured there had to be, cause in the original, he just, he just picked on Jerry cause he could to make a point. And I thought, no, Jerry's got to do something that's just so, that's like you broke, you, you broke the code. And once you break the code, I have to fight you. Even because it's such an unfair fight. I thought, 
why is this? Because you kind of want to also kind of like Buddy too, even though Buddy's kind of like Jim Jacobs. You kind of, in fact, little Jim Morrison and Buddy Ravel too. Absolutely. <laughs> I must have a secret. I must have a subconscious interest in Jim Morrison um, that I didn't realize. But but yeah, so you want to kind of, I like villains you can kind of root for. That's why we love Darth Vader, right? You like kind of root for Darth Vader at the same time as he's the villain. And I think those are the best villains, you know. In um, Hannibal Lecter, right? Like you, he's evil as can be, but you kind of root for him. And I think that um, so, yeah, it was it was uh, it was a blast. And pacing wise, again, I was very very much influenced by After Hours. And if you go back and look at After Hours, you'll see how much I stole from it. I stole. I had I had it on VHS. It was at the time. That's what we had back then. And I just studied it. I, and the two movies I studied for that were After Hours and Mad Max, or I should say Road Warrior. So so their shots taken, you'll see like the boots coming up. If you, like when Buddy steps out of the car and the camera cranes up on the boots, that's straight out of Road Warrior, right? When the guy in the motorcycle, right? And he stops in the motorcycle and the very opening sequence of Mad Max, that's the shot straight out of Mad Max. And so, and, and both of those movies are paced like boom, boom, next, 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 next. No fat. And, and, um... You know, and it's so interesting to think about how the pace of that movie is so diametrically opposed to the pace of The Veil, where you're like, where's this going? Where's this going? Where's this going? Well, one's a mystery and one's like time's running out. So you have two different paces. So I got a couple uh, – I wrote down a couple questions here that I had just had to have answered for me sure. about about this movie. The soundtrack, the yep. opening song. Yep. Okay. Uh, love that song. Can you tell me oh. where that came from? Sure. I went to high school with a guy named Jim Walker. And Jim Walker was famous for writing, in high school, very fun, charming songs about his friends. And so he would take a friend and do kind of an ode, like a, a to the friend, and they were hysterical. We were always going to go for some sort of song, and a bunch of different bands were talked to, and all that kind of stuff. And it was kind of winding around and, and it wasn't done yet. We were still talking to various people. It, it was kind of just taking a long time. And I called Jim. I said, hey, Jim, come over. I'm going to show you the movie. Write one of your songs for the movie because I think, I mean, this is how cool working for Steven Spielberg was. I mean, little did I know, by the way, that it didn't work anywhere else on earth like this. <laughs> Only with him can you do this kind of stuff. Jim wrote the song and he gave it to me on cassette. And I played it uh, for my producer, David Vogel. And he was like, who wrote this? And I was like, this unknown guy I went to high school with. He's like, well, it's really good. Let's put it on the movie. So we put it on the movie and we showed it to Steven. And Steven said, I love it. Use it. Just like that. Boom. And that was that. And he came in and they got a recording studio and they put a band together around it. Because he had just done it on his home, you know, home like cassette player. Just him and guitar. So then we added it all and brought in all these studio musicians. David Tickle, this guy who produced a bunch of your Rhythmics albums, came in and produced it. Rick Murata, this very famous drummer, drummed on Like He brought in these great studio musicians, and Jim did it. And Jim had like, a, I don't remember how long it was, but a few days in the studio. And he was just like, oh, my God, I can't believe like at A&M Studios. It was crazy. Like, we suddenly were in the pros. And, um, and he... Uh, you know, something to remember me by was the name of the song, and uh, I thought he nailed it. And and then we used it in the end as well, yeah. uh, the opening and the closing. Then the score was done by none other than Tangerine Dream. Now, it was kind of a funny story behind this one. So Tangerine Dream, uh, or uh, were you know some of them have passed away now, but were were a German group, right? 
And so they came, they were very, very hot. Uh, they had just done Risky Business. And in fact, they had just scored Legend for Ridley Scott. And there's something else right around that time that they had done that was big. But anyway, really Risky Business was the reason they ended up being connected. And they're iconic, right? So they came and saw the movie in LA and I showed them the movie. And I, and what you, it's called spotting. You know, you walk through the movie with them and you show them, I kind of feel, and you have a temp score on there. And we had temp music that kind of emulated Tangerine Dream stuff, but wasn't theirs, really. And they're like, got it, yes, yes, very good, very good, very good. And, and so then, very good, yes, I see, yes, very good, very quiet, very, very serious, very dedicated, very, very taking notes. And they go back to Germany. Well, usually when you work with a composer, you'll then meet them again and they'll play you themes. And, you know, usually on the piano because it has to be orchestrated and played with an or- live orchestra. But with Tangerine Dream, it was all electronic. So they, of course, being way ahead of the curve, like basically is the way things are done now. In fact, the way the score from uh, for The Veil was done, you know, all electronically. I go to Berlin. Uh, Berlin, they have this this big studio on the Berlin Wall. Wall is still up. And they say, you sit down and they play the movie and you get to hear the entire score finished. So it kind of was like, here we go. So they hit play and we watch the movie and it is the darkest, most dramatic, like, like, it is not funny. (laughs) I mean, meaning it was supposed to be like mock dramatic and mock scary and mock, you know, because the whole thing's a black comedy, but it was just black, no comedy. I sat there and, you know, you're listening to like 60 minutes of music to your film. And what are you going to say? Like, it was all too dark. Like what changed the whole movie? Like, like it was like, are we supposed to be taking this seriously? And as opposed to it being kind of funny and tongue in cheek and, and, uh, black comic. So I said, okay, great, great. Uh, let me just, you know, uh, I'm going to just go outside and get some air and think about it. And I go out with my producer and we go out right by the Berlin wall. And I said, Oh my God, what are we going to do? It's like, you know, it's my first movie. I don't even know what to say to these guys. So he's like, well, we're just going to have to, we're going to have to tell him. Like, okay, okay. So we go back in, and as nicely as I could, I explain, explain, explain. And I said, it's just a little dark and a little serious. And they say to me, but Phil, the big boy is trying to kill the little boy. <laughs> and I said, yes, he is trying to destroy him. He tries to kill him with the brass knuckles. He wants to break his face. Like, they had completely taken it literally. So needless to say, um, I realized that there was a, a kind of a, uh, uh, translation problem and I stayed for a month in Berlin and worked with them every day to go through every queue and a massage it. And ultimately what I found out was they had done all these layers. And if you just removed layers, if you just pulled back, you know, so say there's 12 tracks, 24 tracks. If you started pulling tracks out, there actually was great music under there that worked. You just had to take out the, you know, the low drones. And, and ultimately it worked out great. And, and, uh, and we ended up having a lot of fun. And they actually, by the end of it, started, you know, they started to appreciate and see what I was going for. And they got it. They're smart guys, but they, they, um, but so that was quite the, uh, trial by fire, but a lot of, a lot of fun. And in the end, it truly, I mean, it dates the music. I mean, I'm sorry, the music dates the movie, but in a fun way. You know, it's an 80s comedy. 
Yeah, no, you know? that's absolutely it. I mean, that's it's. I got very, very nostalgic watching that movie, and I yeah. really enjoyed it. I have two real quick questions for you. Sure. Um, one, is it really possible to microwave a shirt? I have no idea, and I have never tried. But my guess is no, okay. and my guess is that it would be disgusting and just be like a like a like a mop, like microwaving a mop. But uh, I never tried it. But I figured, Jer- I figured, uh, J- uh, Jerry would. Jerry would. Jerry would. Jerry- for sure. Uh, the inspiration for the license plate, Super Mom. Do we know where that came from? That came from my mom's license plate. Okay. I thought, that's awesome. <laughs> Can you take me through what's going through your your mind on the very first day of shooting, the very first time that you call action? And can you tell me what scene that was and what was sort of going through your mind? I can. First shot of the movie um, is Jerry and his friend walking down the hallway and he's saying, did you hear about Buddy Ravel? And they're walking toward um, their journalism class. And it's a big wide angle. And I pull back and back and back and back and back. And it's a long dialogue thing. And kids are whipping by through the shot. And then the camera pans in and they go inside the classroom. And he gets assigned to talk to Buddy Ravel. So the very first shot was that hallway shot. And low, wide, looking up and pulling back. Um a, a Kubrickian low 14 millimeter wide angle tracking backwards without a cut. And I did no coverage of it. So it's about, I don't know, a page and a half, two pages of dialogue with no, no coverage. And when I had been apprenticing with Steven, he always talked about how movies are overcovered. They have, you know, guys do way too many close ups. They're always just doing overs, close ups, close ups, over wide master. He said, and that just feels like TV. Filmmakers do things where they cover things in long takes. They use staging. That so he really hammered into me, and I already loved that stuff. Of course, you know we we all studied it in film school, and I love that stuff too. So Steve, I knew Stephen was watching dailies, and so my very first shot, I quite purposely chose to do a scene and with no coverage, and that covered off a page and a half of dialogue like that straight down the hallway as my first shot. And I remember standing there behind the doorway dolly and just thinking to myself, my knees were shaking. My knees were shaking. I remember feeling a little lightheaded, a little dizzy. And I remember thinking, this is my dream come true. Don't fuck it up. (laughs) You know? So, I mean, I I was nervous and um, to say the least. And, but try not to show it, right? Because you're supposed to be the director and, you know, trying to do a very authoritative end action, you know, but, but really, you know, I'm like, here I am on my first movie. I was just couldn't believe it. I think one of the things about my career, some guys seem to enter the film business with like a destiny in mind. Like you feel like, like Paul Thomas Anderson entered the film business. He had a vision for the kinds of movies he was going to make, how he was going to make them, and no one was going to get in his way. You know, David Lynch, the same thing. The Coen brothers, to some degree, the same thing. Like they entered with this, I am going to be this kind of director. I entered blown away. I was even there. That's the truth of the matter. I wasn't like, and watch this. I'm going to be this guy. I was like, I can't even believe I'm the guy, at this guy at all. I was so, it seemed like such a, the dream seemed so far away to me. It seemed so impossible like to get there. That when I got there, I was so happy and excited and blown away to be there. I never really had a vision for what my career, shall we say, should be. 
And I think that's exemplified by the movies I've made. Yeah, they're, they're all over the map. Yeah, it's a diversified as can be. It's like, wait, you've got Three O'Clock High, you've got State of Grace, you've got Rattle and Hum, you've got Final and I. It makes no sense. Like, they don't, Entropy now, this one, like, they don't add up. And, and I think that's because I just loved movies. And I just wanted to be a part of movies. And I just wanted to tell stories, all kinds of stories. And I didn't have, so when I was standing there, it wasn't like, well, here we go. I will now be making my Citizen Kane. I was like, well, here we go. I can't believe I get to be a director. That's really, truly how I saw it. And to this day, I find myself on a set, whether it's a commercial or a movie or whatever, going, God, I can't believe I'm standing around with the crew and the crane and the can, you know, like, and, and the crew, the camera crew, like looking through the lens and the and actors are on. It still feels magical and like a faraway dream that somehow happened to me, as opposed to something I could ever get my hands around and form or make into my own. The movies I felt I could do that. Like the movies I felt I could make into my own, but not the career, not the thing, if that makes sense. So I've, oh, oh, oh I have one little tag on that. So anyway, the next day, the next day on that first shot, uh, I got a call at lunch and it was Steven Spielberg. And he said, Philip, he always called me Philip. And, uh, you know, everyone else mainly calls me Phil. And he said, uh, Philip, I, uh, saw your dailies. Nice first shot. Kubrick. Kubrick would be proud. And I was like, and of course, that's exactly what I was going for. And it was just, I felt like we were, we, it was just like this, you know, filmmaker to filmmaker. And he knew what shot I was emulating and then he nailed it. And uh, I could not have been, I mean, that kind of made that kind of, I, I probably peaked right there. I think that was it. I peaked in that very moment. I've seen most of your filmography uh, in, in some cases, many times, like we've talked about with three o'clock high. And I really feel like we could spend an hour talking about each film. <laughs> but there's one film. I probably, I probably could. <laughs> there's one film in particular that I, I, if I didn't ask you about this film, uh, I would be doing myself an injustice because it's one of my favorite films, and it has been for years. And that's Entropy. And I, wow, I've, I didn't, wow, I didn't expect you to say that. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, but I've read that that is a somewhat an autobiographical uh, film. I, I saw it for the first time back in, I believe it was 2000 when it was on one of the the pay TV cable channels. I I didn't get it from the very beginning. The first time I saw it, I got no, no. But let me say, I didn't get it. I mean, I did. I didn't get, catch the beginning of the movie. I came oh, in. I, I came in right when um, uh, Jake is. He's having the issues with the producers, with Frank Vincent and everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, and well, well, there. And I was. I but I watched the whole. I watched the the rest of the movie from that point on. And I remember going back to that pay per view or pay TV movie channel every night for the next six or seven days until it came on again. And then I got to see it from the beginning. And I identified with Jake's character, not not even realizing this is sort of your story. I just sort of identified with him in that, uh, you know, everything sort of kind of crumbled around him and sort of brought he brought himself back up. And the last line, and I won't spoil the last line because I'm going to encourage a lot of people to see this movie, still resonates resonates with me today. Uh, for, for obvious person, I had, you know, there was a, a girl in my past and, you know, that, that line, uh, gets me. I sure. mean, I watched the movie a week ago. It, it still gets me. Can you, I mean, this was a movie you mentioned, uh, the only movie you had final cut on. Yes. This is your story. Can you talk about it? Sure. Well, it is true that entropy is, uh, as embarrassing as it is to admit, very much autobiographical. Um, 
I did meet a girl while I was making a movie in, in New York and fell in love with her. And, uh, we had this whirlwind romance that, uh, that, uh, fell apart as, uh, the movie got more and more complex. And, uh, as I realized that my, what I thought my dream was, was becoming kind of a nightmare. And when it ended, it threw my life into a tailspin. It was one of those relationships that when it, in it ends, it just, uh, cause really at its heart, entropy is a love story. I mean, it, it has Hollywood as an aspect of it and it has, you know, it, that's the backdrop, but at the end of the day, it's a love story. And so when that ended and fell apart, uh, for a lot of the reasons that are enumerated and shown in the film, I, I fell apart and just all hell broke loose. I did end up meeting a girl backstage at a U2 concert. I did end up going to Las Vegas and marrying her. After knowing her for one night, within 24 hours of meeting her, we were married. The U2 guys did steal um, the video of uh, my wedding at the Elvis Presley uh, Chapel and put it up on their giant screens during the Octon Baby Tour. It just is kind of, I, like looking back on it, because it's a lot of years ago now, I, I have mixed feelings about mainly my own behavior, not the movie, but my own behavior is, is more embarrassing to me now than it was when I made the movie. When I made the movie, it was still kind of funny. And now I, I kind of feel like, you know, I should have been more of an adult than I should have been able to handle, you know, the slings and arrows of life at that time better than I did. And, and a lot of crazy, funny, fun stuff came out of it. And it's true. She, my ex-girlfriend did see it on the big screens and, you know, the whole thing did, you know, come to a head. And I did have a cat named Putty Tat, which she gave me. And no, the cat did not talk to me, but he might as well have. <laughs> and uh, I did, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot of that movie is pretty true. I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's 90%, you know, and, and some of the events are condensed. So it's, it's kind of an odd, that movie is a really odd thing because it, it was something I had to do. It was a story I had to tell. It was something I had to, it, in a bizarre way, it gave me complete closure on, on that experience, you know, and, and on what I'd gone through and gave me, you know, better perspective. Um, but, but I still remain to this day a little embarrassed by my behavior, yet there it is in a film for all to see. So I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> Well, ultimately, and, you, and by the way, by the way, you know, you can catch it again on my website, philgeronodirector.com is the full film. If you click on oh, the entry okay. poster, the full film is there. And what's nice about that version, it's small, you know, because it's, it's, you know, it's off a um, standard death DVD. It's not off a, there's, it doesn't exist on Blu-ray, but no one's ever seen the letterbox widescreen version of that movie because all the versions of the movie are, 185, which you see dolly track and boom mics and stuff because the movie was shot widescreen. But for whatever reasons, Disney, who purchased a whole slew of DVDs from the company I made it for, um, they unfortunately put it out in the wrong format. Hmm. So it's, so it's out there on Netflix and other formats completely wrong. And the only, I have the, apparently the only, correct one and uh but anyway yeah it's uh the whole movie is on my website so i have a couple questions just about uh, real quick um the producers frank vince uh, frank vincent paul Gilfoyle. Yeah. yeah based off of real people but i'm yes. not i'm not going to ask you to tell me who they are but they're they're based off of real people pretty accurate portrayal of of no 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 the real people were worse they were worse oh yeah much worse and i did in fact uh punch one of them on the set that is a true story 
And uh, the guy tried to uh, shut me down and uh, I uh, was in the middle of that breakup and I was unhappy with the making of the film. In this case, we were on the back lot of Warner Brothers and it is true. I uh, He gave me a nice shove when I wouldn't get out of his way and I ended up hitting him and jumping on him and hitting him a bunch more times. I thought I was going to be fired and they, they, they fired him. But um, they fired him. They did. They did. And uh, uh, so, you know, it's kind of falls into the category of how to uh, make friends win over and influence people. That was my yeah in Hollywood. That's, you know, so that was, you know, just another way I made my career much easier on myself. (laughs) Punching a producer was not the smartest thing ever. But yes, that did happen. And they were, you know what happened? It's really a strange, strange thing. I've had a couple of these experiences, but in particular, the film um, that this happened on, they were actively working against the movie and working against me because the star wanted me on the movie and they didn't. So I got the job because the star um, wanted me on the film and they did not want me on the film. They wanted another guy. And so they were doing everything they could to get me fired. That's just the way it worked. And I was like, well, what's the point to this? It was crazy. It was crazy. And yet finally it just came to a head and um, that was the end of that. When it comes to casting yourself, how many actors <laughs> did you look at before you decided to go with Stephen Dorff? Well, it's a funny thing. Um, the guy who was originally going to play it was Adam Sandler. Okay. Adam Sandler wanted to play Jake. And um, he had just, uh, he had a movie coming out called The Wedding Singer, which was about to come out. And this was the movie that really broke Adam Sandler out as a male lead. He had done the wacky comedies, but literally where he played kind of, you know, off Drew Barrymore, a, 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 a likable kind of romantic, goofy lead. And um, they'd shown me the movie and I knew it was coming out and um, went and met him on his, doing a stand-up tour and went and met him and we hung out all night and he agreed to do the movie and I came back and said, Adam Sandler wants to do it. He wanted all of $500,000. My financiers said, no, he, that's too expensive. I think two weeks later, the wedding singer came out and went through the roof and I think he was getting $5 million and that was the end of that. that was it. Um, after that, then um, Matthew Broderick, was what was interested in playing him but he was doing Godzilla at the time and it just went on and on and on past what it was supposed to so that didn't work out for our schedule because we had a hard because the U2 uh U2 was on tour so I had to go shoot during their tour I couldn't wait um and they had agreed to let me shoot during their live shows and to put the stuff up on their screens they gave me five songs for a dollar for the movie which was kind of nice awesome. and yeah that was pretty generous of them and uh because that movie was made in I think in yeah I think we're in five five countries and three million dollars but um but anyway so Stephen then popped up he was the third guy to pop up that was interested and and the financiers said he would work because Blade had just come out and and was making money and that was that so it wasn't it's a weird thing you think you know you're making a movie for three million it isn't like you just go out and get somebody you know make offers and get guys you, everyone's basically working for scale. I mean, you're, you're, everyone's working for, for the lowest fee you can. So you got to find people who really want to do it and, and for the, for the material or, you know, because they relate to it or whatever. It really just kind of by default trickled down to Steven. And Steven, you know, is, is actually a, a really good actor. Um, and he's done some good work, you know, but because he's so good looking, like I wouldn't have cast that good looking a guy. I mean, look at me. You can see me here on Skype. I would not have cast that guy. But, but for his looks, 
But he had an energy, and he was willing to play it kind of quirky and a little more geeky than he normally plays. He's normally the suave guy. And um, so, you know, I thought I thought he really, you know, the people, everyone has different opinions, but I, I, was, I was pleased and thought he, he really delivered for me. And then I've got one more question about entropy. Um, sure. No, sure. Um, I can't believe you liked. I mean, you're just no one saw that movie. I mean, no one saw that movie. So I'm so blown away that that's why I wasn't prepared to really. I I, I thought you were going to say something else, and I was so not prepared to, to, to talk about it. But I think it's fantastic. I'm, okay. I'm, <laughs> I, I, the other, the last question I have is is uh, again there was casting yourself, and then yeah. and I'm trying to put myself in, in your shoes, in the decision on who to cast as Stella. Yeah. Who's going to play the role of Stella? The girl that Stella was based on was actually a South African model. See, a lot of what happens is when you're making films through foreign pre-sales, and I'm sure you've heard this a lot, is the name value ends up mattering. So you could have a great actor. Uh, like, for instance, actually Guy Pierce was interested in playing uh, Jake. But his name value at that time didn't get us enough didn't get us the money so it, it just what there's nothing you can do it's like you can't make the movie with with him at that time and and i i don't i'm sure that's different now but that's the way it was then and so judith goodrich had just done man in the iron mask with leo dicaprio and so that's a big deal and she was cast as the female lead in that and so she had some foreign and domestic cachet and so she was suggested to me it really just became this, she gets the movie done with you. Now, I'm not saying that, that that's, I was forced into it because I wasn't. I could say no. Um, and I went to, to, you know, I flew to France and met her and we had a nice dinner and, and that was that. So it was, um, and she, I will say, visually was similar, very similar. Not that that should have mattered, but was, but was also similar to the girl that she was um, playing. So, and, and similar in that the girl was very kind of demure and very kind of like, cooler and you know like a, a kind of an energy opposite to jake and um jake was kind of frenetic and smashing phones and doing which i had a habit of doing back in the day and and you know uh uh you know kind of high energy crazy and and uh, and and uh, you know emotionally immature <laughs> and she was more cool and uh and kind of more cool-headed and so and i thought judith had that had that energy I will say that what, what was interesting about it, though, because of the French accent, though, some of the dialogue I wrote, you know, was meant to be more kind of a little more screwball comedy. And I think that changed, you know, then I had to rewrite things and adjust things for her being French. So that ended up kind of changing some of the content of the movie in, in, an, in an interesting way. Excellent. Well, I'm so happy to hear that the movie's on your website because I, yes. I mean, and I hope you don't mind me in, in, in telling the listeners that they should definitely check this one out. Yeah, because fact, you, can down, you can download it too. It's on Vimeo as well. I think you can download it as well. I'm pretty, in fact, I'm pretty sure you can download it off Vimeo. It's on Vimeo and it's on my website, both under my name. And, um, and yeah, and you, you can check it out there. Excellent. All right. I appreciate you talking about that one because that one was really, I mean, uh, I, I, it was yeah. I mean, in fact, that movie is so the house at the end where the editing room is and where he talks to the cat. That is the house I was living in. That is my house, and uh, I even filmed it in my own house because it was free. That's the real reason sure. we did it. And um, yeah, there were uh, you know, it was a. Uh, I mean, that thing that was just a great. What's funny is the making of that movie was pretty much as crazy as the story of the movie itself. It just, it was, um, 
that was a wild film to put together and and all over we filmed it in you know Las Vegas, Los Angeles, New York, Cape Town, South Africa, uh, and Paris, France. And oh, and Dublin, Ireland. So six cities. And because I had to go to Ireland to film the U2 guys. So there was a lot of, uh, that was a very wild, wild shoot. Let me ask you this, just a, a offhand question about the shoot. In several of the scenes involving the cat, yes. that cat is a great actor. I mean, I that cat stayed in position. I mean, that was that, was that your cat? Was that? No, was, no, no. The cat, there's three different cats because he started well, out a little. Well, he's a kitten, cat. yeah. Yes, three different cats. And this is the trick if you're ever working with a cat. Warm, they put a warm towel, they put a towel in a microwave, warm it up, you put it down, and the cat loves to stay on something warm. And that's how you get a cat to stay. And, um, but yeah, they had, we had three different cats, and, uh, but the older cat, the main cat, he, um, he was actually incredible and, and would do whatever the little train, and again, on that kind of movie, you have no time. Like you just gotta go. So you couldn't wait for the cat. And then, of course, uh, for, doesn't really ruin too much, but the cat ultimately talks. No. And uh, the so on the day, what you do is you have the cat there and you get him to move his mouth. And then I, uh, the animators needed somebody, uh, the guys at Rhythm and Hughes, uh, who did Babe, the talking pig, um, did it for me. And they did it for free, actually. And because um, they saw the movie and liked it and decided to just do me a favor. And I had on the day filmed myself doing his monologues. So they'd have something to go by. And then they used my voice, and then I, they just said, look, we got to use you. And so I ended up being the voice of my own cat. One of the incredible things about Entropy as well is the relationship that Jake has with the band U2. Yeah. Now, I wonder if you would talk a little bit about your relationship with, with U2 and maybe how you got into doing, which is arguably one of the great rock documentaries of all time, U2's Rattle and Hump. Well, I, um, the way I got into doing that was uh, a, a friend of mine um, knew their manager and, or I, I mean, a, a person I was working with knew their manager and he said to me, look, they're interviewing directors to do a concert film with U2. Would you be interested? And I said, of course, yes. And so he said, go, well, I'll make a call and see if I can get you in for an interview. And the next day he called me and said, look, they're in Hartford, Connecticut tonight. And if you can make it to Hartford, Connecticut tonight, they'll meet you. But then they're flying back to Europe uh, to do the European leg. So they're only in America for one more night. And so I drove straight to the airport and made it to Hartford, Connecticut um, before the show was over and met them backstage. And um, we hit it off. They said to me, the, the key question was, they said, um, if you were going to make a movie about you too, what kind of movie would you make? And I'm sitting there staring at the four band members and their manager, Paul McGinnis, 15 minutes after the show. I can't even believe I'm backstage. I've never been backstage at a concert in my life. I, I can't believe I'm sitting there with you two, you know, the Joshua Tree tour. And I just said, well, I wouldn't dictate what kind of movie y you should make. It's your band. It's not a fictional story. It's you. So what kind of movie do you want to make? And they said, you're the first director to ask us that. Come to the hotel. So anyway, we stayed up till five in the morning at the hotel. Then they asked me to Dublin. And they said, fly to Dublin. And so then I went to Dublin with them. And I was in Dublin with them for a week. And they just took me everywhere around Dublin. They even took me to a wedding. And then a band left the wedding and left me there in the countryside at a wedding all by myself just to see how I would get back into Dublin and whether I could handle myself if they abandoned me. 
Um, so they put me through a whole bunch of tests. They would take me over to their friends' houses to have dinner, and then they would leave, and I would end up having dinner with their friends just by myself. And these are all their, their high school friends, the people that they still trust the most. And so anyway, at the end of that week, they offered me the movie. And so we did we did what became Rattle and Hum together. I was out on tour with them for about four months and worked together with them for a year. I ended up doing, I've done about eight videos for them since then. Those are all on the website as well. And so including a bunch of outtakes of, uh, there's all, there's for you two fans on my website, there's about eight or nine um, songs that weren't in any of the movies that no one's ever seen that I posted. So that's kind of fun to see different versions if you're a big, if you're a diehard YouTube fan. But so then over the years, you know, I've just, I've, I've stayed friendly. They're like family in that when you are once inside kind of their circle, they keep a very tight circle of, of people. Like I went, just saw them again on tour here in LA, you know, this year. And it's the exact same people. It's the same sound guys, it's the same roadies, it's the same guitar techs, it's the same tour manager. It's the same. It's everybody. It's, they've had the same people for, for 40 years. It's crazy. And, um, so once you kind of become a part of that family, they really take good care of you and they maintain the relationship and the friendship. And, you know, I know their kids and know their, you know, I mean, I knew Bono and Allie before they had children. And now I know all four four of their children. I mean, so it's been a long-term relationship. So when I did Entropy, I sent Bono the script and I said, look, you're in this script because you were a part of the story. And you did lock me in my hotel room and you did, you know, um, try to snap me out of it by running my footage on your giant screens. And it did end up on MTV. And that is how my sister found out. And, you know, I went through all this. So you owe me. You got to, I'm going to tell the story. I can't tell it without you. And he just said, we're in. We're just, we're in. Don't worry about it. Done. So, and I said, well, I would need to shoot live during like a stadium show. And he said, fine, bring the footage. We'll put it up. And he did dialogue from the stage and everything. I mean, it was crazy. They're, they are, you know, really the greatest personal experience I've ever had making a film was Rattle and Hum because they just are as good a people as you could hope to work with or get to know or, or be friend, have as a friend. They, they just are the real deal human beings, all four of them and the people that are around them. It's not like you're feeling, oh, yeah, and then there's like the sleazy people you got. No, it. they are just, they've just set themselves up um, with a group of people that are fantastic human beings as they are and their, their wives are and their families are. It's crazy. They're just great, great guys. And I've watched them now for, gosh, we're talking, I did Rattle and Hum was 87. So, you know. Here we are, what, 28 years later, and, uh, you know, it's, they're exactly, they're still exactly the same, and um, just terrific people. So, I just had an incredible experience working with them. Do you ever foresee an opportunity to do another documentary film with them? Has that discussion ever come up? No, because it's really turned into now more of a, like, the guy they have now, I want to say Hamish, I don't know his last name. He directs like the Oscars. He directs like the Grammys. He's it's a live camera thing now. You know, it's a guy in a truck and it's you put up 25 video cameras and all kinds of trickery and really the age of in fact really Rattle and Hum was on the tail end if not the end of and there was Madonna's Truth or Dare yeah. and then after that I think it was pretty much over yeah. of the theatrical you know concert film. You know, I'm sure there have been some some other ones that I've that I've missed and and smaller releases. You know, I know Bogdanovich did his thing with Tom Petty, and but it, but it it um was also like I was also lucky enough to work with on a on a couple of videos. But I 
it's really the film side of that, the kind of more classic versus the TV documentary special and or like, for instance, I know they did a documentary on the making of this tour, but then they, they I guess they apparently decided not to run it, you know, because I know they shot one for this tour, but they ended up only doing the live show. I, I thought they were going to do the document. There's just not really MTV killed the behind the scenes because they literally had behind the music. And once behind the music became a thing, it became every day. You, you got the behind the music story on every band out there. So what was special what, what those, you know, films used to give you this, this really used to crack open the door and you could speak into the, the world of this band. That's now kind of become every day. So the, the specialness of it has really worn off. And so now it's more the realm of TV. Now, for the record, because I don't know this, did you two do a behind the music? No, no, they never did. They never did. No. Okay. No, because they kind of felt it was right during Rattle and M. They kind of, and also back then, as opposed to now, back then they had, you know, I had, I have, hundreds of hours of interviews with them where they explore their everything, their childhoods, their influences, their like their emotional responses to things in their lives and their career that they wanted none of that in the movie. They had final cut on that movie and they wanted none of that in the movie because they didn't want to explore their personal lives or histories. Now, since then they've done the books and they've done all kinds, they've kind of revealed all, but back then they were very much into the mystique of being in a rock band, not peeling away uh, the mystery. They wanted to retain the mystery of, uh, and really have it be about the music. And that's why there's kind of a joke at the beginning of the movie where Edge says, you know, you said, you said it was going to be about the music. You know, at least that's what you told us because they really just wanted it to be about the music and the tour, but not about them. And so that's all, that's all changed. But even back then, the idea of going, you know, behind the music and their personal history would not have been. But now with, you know, innocence and experience, I mean, they're revealing, you know, all that stuff. But look, it's taken a long, long time. For Bono to talk about, you know, his past and his mother and all those things. And now that's much more at the forefront. Is there a favorite moment from that film? Do you have a favorite moment? For me, I'm I'm a huge fan of the when they're in the Harlem church. I just yeah. think that's just a magical, magical moment. But is there a favorite moment for you? That's one of those ones where they, uh, I give that boring answer of there's so many, sure. it's hard to choose. You know, there's a moment in the movie where he's singing Sunday Bloody Sunday and Bono goes into what he called back then a rant about, you know, a bombing that had happened in Ireland and the IRA and the revolution and the revolution back home. And he finally says, fuck the revolution. And that song was in and out of the movie many times. And then at one point the song was in, but just the rant was taken out because back then in 1987 to say, fuck the revolution to the IRA was not something you did. It was still a very real threat. And it did end up getting him, you know, major headlines in Dublin. You know, Bono says, fuck the revolution. And, uh, you know, they, they said they put him on the death list and, you know, all these things and threatened his family. And he really went through uh, an ex- kind of excruciating period there trying to decide if he should be in the film or not, mainly because of the threat that could be posed against his family. And uh, he decided to do it because he that's how he felt and he felt it was right and he felt that he, he said it at the time and that we documented it and it was powerful. So I, for me, because, because of what I know we went through behind the sure. scenes, yeah. you know, yeah. to get there, it's just in the movie and you think now, well, yeah, fuck that revolution. Yeah. It's over now. They, you know, and like that's, he was right. But back then, it was a big, big risk. It was a, and when we premiered the movie in Dublin, 
oh, man, I mean, there were some people that were like, wait a second, you do not say that. It was not met with, you know, unanimous uh, support and praise, that that sentiment, <laughs> that statement. So anyway, for me, that he went out on that limb and let the movie at that moment in time and period in history to really be a, a real risk for him and his family, but because he stood behind his principles on it, I thought that was pretty brave. So that's kind of special for me, having been a part of that process. In terms of the fun I had, oh my God, I could go on. I mean, that day, I mean, I could go on and on. That filming in Graceland was incredible. Uh, the the um, Sun Studios was incredible. I mean, just because the, there's nothing that people don't realize about you two, although more so now, they're incredibly funny. That's the thing that, unfortunately, the movie, I had a bunch of funny stuff that was really good. But again, they were still more into, you know, you two, as they used to say, save the whales. And they used to say, you know, pull up the blue sky and fuck the revolution. So they were now they're much more playful and have much more kind of a, um, a looser point of view on things in terms of their public persona. But behind the scenes, which I wanted to capture there, his particularly Bono is hysterical. He's so funny. And so, oh, my God, the amount we laughed and the amount of fun we had. And, you know, and the cool thing about I, I always say, like. It's so great if you could be in a successful rock band or a successful because you're the you're the like in terms of their world they're the director they're the producer they're the star they're the writer they're everything there's no one between them and what they do and and so because of that that kind of control and freedom passed right along to me because I was with them it was kind of like no one could mess with us and on top of which people don't realize they paid for that movie out of pocket they paid $5 million to have that movie made and then sold it to Paramount and we were done. But they literally wrote a check to make that film. Did you ever have a hangover or two when you were uh, shooting that oh, film? Those guys too. <laughs> like, I don't know if it's, I think it's born genetically. Like it's in, like they're just like, you know, having a nice night out and a drink or two and I'm under the table. Like, like, forget it. So at a certain point, I was like, I cannot do this. I cannot keep up. This is not going to work. I am not going to survive because for them, they're like, oh, look, Phil's under the table. And they would laugh. Like they would, I mean, not, I mean, literally under the table. Like, like it was bad. I, I went on drinking with a couple uh, friends of mine who had some friends from Ireland, and that's oh, yeah. exactly the oh. you 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 just verbatim said the experience that we all oh. had. They were up it's three in the morning. We're sleeping underneath the bar tables, and they're wanting to know where we're going next. I know it's and this is like four, five, six in the morning, and I'm just like, are you what on? How are they doing this? It's uh, well, you know, like they say, you know. Uh, a, a, a wee bit of bourbon in the bottle, in the baby bottle. Never hurt anybody. And uh, so, uh, you know, they, they, uh, oh, so much fun though. And, and yeah, it's in fact, I learned, I will admit, I learned how to drink with the boys because up until then I was a real teetotaler uh, having come from the uh, very much bedroom community of La Cunata, California, that once I saw, you know, how the Irish did it, but I, I still could never keep up. Never, ever, ever. No way. <laughs> It was too, it was too crazy, but they're super fun. And, and it's just, it was like, I don't know. It was so inspiring. In fact, it kind of rattle and hum kind of screwed me up because it was so great in so many ways and so pure that I became inspired by their kind of like, this is how we do it. We don't do it any other way. We do it the right way. No to, and they say no to what's not right. And they make sure it's right. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to be like them. I'm going to apply that same ethic to filmmaking. And it just isn't the same thing. 
It just isn't. Because at the end of the day, when it comes time for them to make their movie, the four of them go into a room with Brian Eno and Danny Lanoir, whomever, and make their movie. They close the doors and make their movie for a year. You know, it costs them a million bucks to make an album. And and that that's the high end, right? I mean, that's like that's the equivalent to Star. That's they're Star Wars on the on the budget side of things. Like that, it's million, million two, whatever. It's not apples to apples. But for a while there, for the next four or five years, I was so inspired and influenced. I think I was much more of a pain because I was like, nope, we're not doing it that way. We're doing it this way. But it it, it just isn't the same thing in, in between music and film. It's just not the same. Which is why I think a lot of people who try to go from music into the film world find it very disconcerting. They think, well, hey, I do it in music. I'm going to come across and I'm going to produce movies or direct movies or make movies or even act in movies. And they find out, oh, wait a second. The control one has as a musician who creates their own material versus a filmmaker or an actor or producer, forget it. It's like night and day. It's not even close. Uh, one last question about you. T- you, you mentioned that you had just recently seen them. Uh, in concert is the energy still there are they still i mean compare them 87 to last year the the uh, the onstage presence is it is it amped up even more i mean is it never stopped oh yeah the energy is 100 percent the same like you wouldn't even like if you hear them play you know pride in the name of love now and pride in the name of love then you you know if you close your eyes you wouldn't know if you're watching the performance you wouldn't know how much time has passed. The biggest, biggest difference is there's a lot, lot more joy in their performances now. They, they really went from, I would just call it from dark to light. You know, you'll say, how do you think they've changed? I think that, you know, when I work with them and, and you can see it, particularly in some of these outtake songs, um, that are on the website, or if you even look at Rattle and Hum again, in general, you know, silver and gold, again, Sunday, Buddy, Sunday. I mean, there's joy and pride in the name of love, but exit. Um, you know, Helter Skelter. We open the show with Helter Skelter and he's like, Wah! you know, he's like full blown. He looks like d- demon-esque. You know, he's really going for it. And I thought that w- what they were back then was intense, dark, aggressive, and uh, very, very politicized. And now I think they're more open. I think they're more emotional. I think they're more joyful. I think they're more grateful. You know, back then they were still trying to win and they were still trying to get to, yeah, they'd be on the cover of Time Magazine. Yeah, they had Joshua Tree, but they weren't done. That wasn't going to be their peak. And and then there was a backlash against them after Rattle and Hum and the album, the double album, because it was too much and too much marketing and to overkill and people were, quote, sick of you too. So they went away and they they, they went to Berlin and they did Octane Baby, which was even better. I mean, Octane Baby is my favorite U2 uh, tour. And it just, and I think that tour really broke it wide open. He became the fly. He put on the glasses. He put on the leather. He had a cowboy hat. He had the Elvis outfit. Uh, later in Europe, he was McFisto. So it really, really changed them. And in many, many ways, the experience of Rattle and Hum broke them out, like broke them out of that closed in. We're not going to talk about it. And he said, I'm a rock star. I'm going to be a flamboyant rock star. I'm going to take on this persona. And I think that just grew and that grew into the pop tour. And then they kind of got more back to their emotional roots with all that you can't leave behind and Atomic Bomb. And I I think now they're just like open. I think what you get now is a much more open, much more emotional, much more kind of generous. Not that they weren't generous, but I mean, they're not withholding, they're giving more. And so I think you're just, and also I think they're very, very grateful for what they got to have in there. I don't think I know. They're extremely grateful to have, they're not full of crap when they're saying thank you, like thank you to their fans and thank you. I mean, it's a long run to be them. It's a long run. Most people burn out 
by this point. And most people are done. And most people are in the oldies phase. You know, and they're just the way it is. You're, you're paying your oldies and that's what you do. These guys are on tour playing 60% of the songs are new. No, they do not back off their new albums, regardless of what people want, you know, think they should do. So I think that, um, you get a much, much more open, much more emotional YouTube now than you did then. I like both. And uh, probably they'd say, oh, Phil, admit it. You liked it when we were dark. And it's true. I liked it when he was pissed off. I liked it when Bono, I liked pissed off Bono. Pissed off Bono was fun to watch. Happy Bono is also fun to watch, but I like pissed off Bono. So every once in a while when he revs it up and something gets under his skin, I always I always like it when, when that guy comes back a little. That's excellent. So, Phil, this is it's it's clear to me that I have to have you back. We we have to we have to continue the conversation. I've got notes on four or five more movies that I want to talk about, including State of Grace, Heaven's Prisoners, uh, Gridiron Gang. I'm a huge football fan, and I'm going to tell you the accuracy of the the actual football scenes, the play calling that was that was done, and the actual play that was presented. Like when they when they call it, when Dwayne Johnson would call mm-hmm. a play. That was the actual play that happened. Uh, I thought, okay, that there's a level of authenticity to those football scenes that I have I've been sorely missed in a few other football ones. But we'll we'll talk about that on another well, occasion. You. That's something I really I'm, I can't believe you noticed that, but yep. really tried to do because there's a lot of phony football out there in the film world. Yep. <laughs> as, as someone who's a diehard football fan, I noticed that right away. Like you know, he's he, he's calling a toss, and he's actually doing a toss. It's not a handoff. Yeah. It's not a pass. It's a toss. Yeah. So, so for those who want to learn more about your work, and you know, we've talked about this already on the show. See some of your your movies and your commercials. Where can they go? Um, I have a website, and it's philjuanodirector uh, dot com. So it's uh, my name, P H I L J O A N O U Director dot com. Excellent. And then it has, yeah, my, you know, commercials, music videos, documentaries, television, the Punisher short, got to, and even some of my student work. So, yeah. Perfect. And I'm going to have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, so everyone who's listening to that, just literally look at the show notes for this, this particular episode, and the website will be there. And you can just do a direct link right to it. Now, before we go, this is a question I like to ask, especially of people that are in the industry. What advice would you have for somebody in 2016 – who is just getting started in the business and wants to be a filmmaker. It's a really interesting time to, you know, want to be a a storyteller on film. You, you have so many outlets now where your work can be seen, but at the same time, that means there's that many more people and that many more films to be seen. So it's kind of a, you know, a good news, bad news kind of thing. So what do you do? You, I used to say to people, you got to go make a short. You got to go make a short film. You got to you got to tell your story. I don't care if it's three minutes or 30 minutes. You got to have something people can watch that shows that you are a storyteller on film. But now it's kind of anyone with an iPhone is trying to do that. And, and so that's just the achievement of that in and of itself is not all that special because, you know, just go to YouTube or Vimeo or thousands of other places. So what do you got to do? You got to stand out. You got to stand out. And that means you have to come up with an idea, a story and characters first. Just being able to execute is not going to do it anymore. It used to be, wow, look at this guy. He can shoot. Oh, wow, look at this guy. He can put a sequence together. He can, but that's not going to do it. You have to have an idea that stands out. So before you go to all the trouble of rounding up your friends, 
rounding up family members, money, time, and the effort, be really, really sure that you have, as sure as you can be, I mean, nothing's guaranteed, that you have something special that will stand out for its content, not just for its execution. Usually in a short, that means the idea. And then of course, within that, you know, as you know, character and narrative execution become, become super important too. Then, you know, of course, execution does matter. And so that just comes with practice. I mean, that's the weird thing about, about it is that, is that the only way you get better and better at putting films together is to keep making them. And I, again, I don't care if that's on your iPhone or a 5D or an Alexa or an Airy 3, whatever it is you can get done because none of that matters anymore. None of that, none of the format matters. None of that, you know, um, you know, there's a cool little anamorphic attachment you can put on your iPhone now that, that looks really cool. Give yourself a widescreen look. The veil was shot anamorphic. You can do the same thing on your iPhone. So you can make your mo- you can make movies look like movies. And today with, you know, all the, geez, you know, all the color correction and black magic and, and Adobe and, you know, and after effects, you can really, really do a lot. So the problem is, is that the bar for just being able to execute is, is pretty low. But, but, but then, to stand out that way, you got to do it again and again and again and again. And then when you're ready, you take that idea, you take that script, and you have to just go as far and as hard as you possibly can to make it look and feel polished and finished and professional. Um, and, and hopefully you stand out that way because then getting it out there, there's a, there's a lot, a lot of ways to get it out there. And, and of course, lastly, the big thing that gets you noticed today in, in the, the short film world are, are usually heavy duty effects shorts. I mean, that's really what usually gets the links. Gizmodo will link to you and say, oh, short of the week, you know, and it's usually some guy who worked for five years on CG all by himself and he used to work in an effects house and, you know, it's some futuristic thing chasing through the city. And I think to myself, yeah, that's good. And those guys will get gigs and all of that. But I still believe story and character will never go out of style, ever. Techniques will come and go. Technology will come and go. Story and character has been around since we sat around, you know, uh, campfires in our caves thousands of years ago, and they're still going to be around a thousand years from now. So focus on story, focus on your idea, focus on your characters, execute, and hey, if it has effects in it, great. If it doesn't, who cares? It, it, it's really, that's, that's the key because that's where it's always going to be at. Phil, I really want to take this time to thank you for, for being on the How Is This Movie podcast. It, uh, it meant a, a great deal to me to be able to talk to you about uh, some of the work that you've done. And once again, the VOD release date for The Veil is, you said it. February 2nd? February, Tuesday, February 2nd. So yeah. we're all, uh, we're all looking forward to seeing that one again. So thank oh. you so much. Oh, thank you, Dane. It's been a blast. I mean, I, I've really enjoyed the conversation and thanks for taking out your time and, and watching the movie and, and being a part of this. And I'm just excited to get the word out. Excellent. Well, listen, we're going right. to, we're going to have you back really soon. So cool. listen, take I would care. Love that. Thank you. Okay. You too. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye.